forever. Dog. They write, they talk, and talk about what they write. Tune in time to tonight, or whenever the time is right. It's the Writer's Panel with Ben Blacker, and it's starting now. Oh, yeah. Good to have you all here. Thank you so much for being part of today's Writer's Panel episode. I'm going to begin by going around and asking you to introduce yourselves on the microphones and tell the listener where they may have seen your name on their television or movie screen. And Akela, let's start with you. Hi, Akela Cooper. Uh, you may know me from season six of American Horror Story and two seasons of Luke Cage on Netflix, as well as the recently released movie Malignant, which came out last weekend. And is available to watch on HBO Max, right? Until mm-hmm. October? Yes, until I think October 10th. It's like a 30-day window, something like that. Perfect. And folks should watch it. It's bananas and we're going to get into it. <laughs> James, please say hello. Tell us where we've seen your name before. My name is James DeMonico. I guess best known as creator of the Purge movie franchise. I've recently directed a film called This is the Night with Naomi Watts and Frank Grillo and Bobby Cannavale. It's a coming of age story about a family in Staten Island, New York on the night that the film Rocky Three opens across the country. And it's about how this film inspires this family to rise up and fight their fears. It's about inspiration. It's about the movies. It's about my love of cinema. And it's most importantly about the sanctity and importance of the theater going experience, which is very dear to me. Uh, Vince, please introduce yourself. I'm uh, Vince Marcello, and uh, you would uh, best know me from uh, a series of films uh, that have been on the ne- Netflix for the last three, three and a half years. Uh, it's the Kissing Booth franchise. Uh, where I adapted a, a, an original novel and wrote, directed, and produced um, a trilogy story of uh, those characters' lives. Uh, and again, if folks, ha- I don't think there's anyone who hasn't seen them, but if they haven't, they should go check it out. They're absolutely charming. They're really yeah. fun, and they're very, very sweet, enjoyable films. Um, I want to talk to you uh, during this this hour about what is next and. Uh, how you how like you've you've done yeah. this this has been your life for three to five years um so we'll talk about what comes next but sujata please introduce yourself hi i'm sujata day i'm an actress turned writer director i was on the misadventures of awkward black girl on youtube Issa ray's web series and i was on insecure And so I am now really excited for the theatrical premiere of my debut feature film that I wrote, directed, produced, and star in called Definition, Please. It's so exciting. I feel like we've been talking about this film forever. Um, (laughs) And it'll be out in theaters. What's the date? Uh, How do they see it? We are actually just having our theatrical premiere and we are still talking to streamers and distributors in at the moment. Well, listen, if if you are a streamer or distributor out there, get on board. Movie Um, for sale. Movie for sale. (laughs) Movie for sale. Did you try Craigslist? I think. Oh, oh. Offer up. Throw it up on offer up. (laughs) Offer up. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But they have to get it themselves. I will say um, I, I sold an old printer on OfferUp for 130 done. bucks cash. <laughs> nice. You're the only one who's made money on there. Yeah. 
Um, all right. I want to talk about um, these movies that we've mentioned already. And I want to sort of talk about this idea that I had while I was watching Malignant. So, Akela, we're going to start with you again on this. That is giving us something that is both familiar enough to be comfortable and to get people to watch it, but also unusual enough or unexpected enough or personal enough that, you know, A, it gets made right? We don't want to see the same old thing over and over. But B, people get excited about it, right? That's what we want to see is that unusual take. Um, so let's start with Malignant, but then I want to talk about all of your current projects um, and get into like, how do you tackle something that is clearly in the horror genre, which James, you've done also. How do you tackle a coming of age story, which Sujata and James, you've both tackled, a love story, a rom-com, whatever it is, using that existing, the existing tropes, the existing format, and sort of make it your own? Um, and I, So it's a big question, but Akela, I trust you to lead us in. Oh, okay. Leading the charge. So you basically get into it, in my case, when James Wan uh, comes to you and is like, hey, I've got this batshit saying idea that I want to do, and I want you to develop it with me and write it for me. It's like, okay. Uh, and then he and his wife, Ingrid Bisu, had a synopsis written up, and I took that and developed it further. Uh, but this was this was James's passion project. Like he had been working in like the studio system for a while. He'd done Fast Seven and Aquaman, obviously. And Aquaman had given him the clout that he could go to Warner Brothers. Is like, I just need five million dollars from all of you, and uh, I'm gonna go make this little indie horror movie. And they said yes. And it was a wonderful journey to be on with him. And it was very collaborative and awesome. But it's like, really, it's like, it's fun to fulfill someone's passion project. Like, I enjoyed it. And I enjoyed bringing uh, what I could to it, which is actually, it's like, uh, long story short, I actually had a friend who had a teratoma. Uh, and so when I met with James and Ingrid, I was like, yes, I know exactly what this is because... I have a friend who this happened to her when she was a teenager. And so like, we all just got really, really excited about bringing that to screen in the absolute worst, most batshit way possible. Uh, so yeah, yeah, it really, it just started with James and I am like super proud and super happy that he trusted me with his passion project. So let me go a little broader. Um, you know, on any of these, and, and you have listed, I don't know, you know, how true of these, but uh, but like a bunch of horror stuff coming up. And you've worked in the genre for a while, as well as like sci-fi and superhero stuff. What do you feel like puts you in it? Like, what's the Akela Cooper in these stories? What do you think you bring to some of them oh that that they're not just a story that we've seen before? It's just, it's... I was going to say, it's like, if you can't see my face, because I was like panicking, because my initial answer was like the violence, uh, because I am a fan <laughs> of action and violence. And I, for this, what was, I was really happy to do actually, uh, and I know this isn't going as in depth as you want to, it's just a surface level thing, but it's like, it's, it's the gore of it all, because right now we're in an era of like the heightened horror movie and like the hoity toity. So, like horror movies uh and it's yeah, not the elevated you know, we, horror that, yes that elevated phrase, yeah horror and i was told uh quite a few times that you know when i was out like trying to sell specs the horror that i want to do isn't being made 
and it was going to take someone else, like some other lemming to go off that cliff first before the other lemmings are going to follow. And we're going to get back to like the 80s and early 90s style horror movies that I grew up loving and I wanted to do. And then James Wan came to me with this project and I'm like, yes, I am in. And I hope that Malignant is going to open that door for more, you know, not traditional, but like just, you know, horror, horror. And like the monster horror, like I am, I can't tell you how thrilled I am to have had a hand in creating Gabriel, who is like a new cult monster that people seem to be loving, at least on Twitter. Um, And just, it's, it's fun for me to scare the shit out of people. And even if not scaring the shit out of them, thrilling them to no end uh, and, you know, making their day with a horror movie that no one has seen in a while that they enjoy. And that took them out of the shit of the world for, you know, (laughs) at least two hours. Uh, That's what I get out of it. I really think it's like, I enjoy freaking people the fuck out and I'm happy I got to do that. (laughs) I think that that's absolutely makes sense. Um, Vince, I want to ask the same question as applied to the romantic comedy, you know, how do you approach it? What do you think is the you in the story? Why are you the person to tell the story? Because I think that's in large part what people are responding to. Yeah, it's, it's I'm listening to Akela's story and there's so much um, crossover um, because once again, um, you know, romantic comedies were a genre that, that uh, Hollywood had sort of lost faith in because of the business model, the cost, two expensive pieces of talent, marketing of the film, uh, for films that generally weren't big set piece driven uh, tent poles, and those movies sort of fell to the side. And so it was the same situation where um, I don't know if you know the backstory. A kissing Booth was 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 brought to me. I had I came from the world of theater, by the way. My background was in theater. So when I arrived here in Los Angeles and began working as a commercial director, previously uh, began working um, something that I could do that was very specific to my background. Talk about what I putting yourself in there was this knowledge of the mechanics of how do you make a musical work uh, on screen as well as on stage. And there's, you know, connective things that, that are, are the same and there's things that are different. And so, you know, for me, it was, what's that special thing that I can bring? It's this knowledge of musicals. So I began to incorporate my first films that I did here, but launched my career were, were musical driven. And because they were musically driven at that time, young people were still very activated in music. Uh, you know, people of, you know, over 30 were in that period where they're not sure it was Moulin Rouge was just happening. So people were, you know, still kind of rediscovering the musical. So I started doing things for this, you know, 15 to 25 age group because of the music in my background. So in a weird way, I, I, I brought that component of it to these films, which are romantic comedy. You're saying, well, it's not a musical, but they're conceived of in a very musical way. The music was a huge character in the stories. Um, and my objective there was I wanted to just tell another uh, or, or sort of an unabashedly romantic movie uh, that for me um, had the same colors and heightened quality of the John Hughes movies of the 80s. So like Akila, I was looking back to a period of movies that were hugely, I mean, I was the age when those movies, the characters in those movies are virtually right around the same age that I was. So they were hugely formative for me. And like, where are those films? They're not being made right now. Um, I mean, American Pie is a far distant 
cousin to those films. And that's like, you know, 20 years ago, you don't realize, we don't even think how long that was. So ultimately, you know, for me, it was, can we take this uh, very charming book, which by the way, was written by a 15 year old girl uh, and was put up on WAPAT, uh, which is a self-publishing site. And this uh, young girl just decided she wanted to write a book uh, about a, uh, a never been kissed girl who, you know, does a kissing booth, uh, as simple as that. Um, and within a year, she had over 20 million followers reading this book. So that's I how I know that. Yeah. So it's, it's quite a, it's quite an interesting story. And she's a, a lovely, lovely, lovely young woman who's uh, just launched her whole career because of it, got picked up by Random House and, and offered a book deal um, and a lovely collaborator. But ultimately, this story came to me and I was reading it and I'm like, this is feeling John Husey to me. I wonder if she, and so I, did you ever see this movie? You know, and she's like, yeah, my mom showed me this one. Mom, I'm like, okay, we're going to do a John Hughes kind of feel here. But what we're going to do is we're going to make it sort of a nostalgic love letter to Los Angeles, which is all things that I love. The sort of the, that, that 70s, 80s vibe, which was my youth, um, the, the rom-com, as well as taking music and making music a real character. So those are the things from myself that I brought as you always do, you take the material and you you spin it so that it starts to resemble and is molded in the way that you see things, and that's uh, that's what I did. Was the intention always to direct it yourself too? Yes. Yeah. Okay. I yeah. I had they had brought it to me, you know, because you're at that time I was I had created a franchise for Disney uh, called the Teen Beach Movie, which was this parody of these 1960s beach movies. Uh, two contemporary surfers get dropped in a 60s beach movie and can't get out, and um, so, uh, yeah, so this was, you know, that and, and it had been the movie had done very, very well, was very highly watched on on uh, on cable. And so they came to me with this and said, could you make it uh, another sort of coming age franchise here? And um, for me, it was if I do this, then I'm going to direct it because it's it's like in my DNA of who mm -hmm. I am as a as a director and writer. So, yeah. And is there I mean, I had mentioned at the beginning, like talking about what comes next, do you feel like there are variations on this theme or have you like, has this gotten out of your system? Do you, are you aching to try something new? Where does, where does it fall? How, how deeply ingrained is this stuff for you? Yeah. You know, and I, I'm sure James spending the amount of time James has spent building this huge franchise that he's created. I'm sure you can relate to this, which is you, you develop this love for these stories and these characters and you become so attached to them. And I'm, you know, it's, it's a six year process these three films. So, you know, it's getting up every day and looking at those three characters and I'm enormously attached to them. At the same time, you start to feel your world starts closing in. You start feeling very small. You know, you feel like you guys were talking about shows that, that you're watching. And I was, I'm so ashamed to admit, I mean, I've seen some, but you, you become actually cut off from other media because we just, you know, delivered the movies and they just premiered. And so, there is a hunger and because of my background, I mean, I was, you know, I was directing, you know, Tennessee Williams. I was doing a variety of different things on the stage uh, before I, you know, transitioned into film. Um, so yes, I love romance. I love coming of age stories. I love music. Um, so all of those things, but could find, perhaps find their way into different stories. Um, and, and so for me, it's, I think the next steps are, and all of my projects I'm looking at are breaking out from that. However, I would love to continue to produce those films and help directors 
who've got interesting stories and other angles into rom-coms or teen coming of age movies get those told because I think it's, it, there is an enormous audience for this as is evident. I mean, prior to, to Kissing Booth coming out, which was amazing, it kind of launched that again as a viable franchise. Yeah. But before that, you know, I, I literally had my agent saying, you will never sell this. You will never sell this. And so, and then all of a sudden it became bring us a kissing booth. So um, I'm very grateful to have had the chance to do that. And I want to help other people. That's great. I'm, I'm glad to hear it. I want to talk uh, about a different genre, and that is coming-of-age movies. Um, and James and Sujata, let's talk about this and your personal approaches to this, the tropes that you find there. Like, why tackle this? How do you find your way in? And James, let's start with you. Yeah, so it's a, it's a, it's a genre I love. But I think it was, it's, um, the movie, so this is the night my movie, which is coming out this week. It's, uh, it's about an Italian-American family in Staten Island who, uh, it's 1982, it's night Rocky Three is opening in America, but specifically we're focusing on this one neighborhood in Staten Island where the love of Sylvester Stallone and the Rocky character is really uh, grown to a, a fever pitch because of Rocky One and Rocky Two, and the Italian-Americans of the neighborhood have really taken to this character, and he's become kind of their god and savior. It sounds almost heightened, and there's a heightened realism in it, but it's very autobiographical. I grew up in a very... I grew up in this world. So this was the reality. When Rocky Three opened here, it was almost like chaos in the streets. We were all lining up. I did wait four hours as we, three and a half hours on a line to see the film. So so I approached it from, I guess I approached making the film. It was very personal. This was the most personal. Uh, and I always say I had purge fatigue, but I, I have to thank the purge because it allowed me to come make this very personal film, which as we all know, it's very hard to get a personal made, personal film made in the studio system. So yeah, listen, I grew up loving Stand By Me. I loved, uh, you know, everything from, I'm, I'm an 80s guy too, Vince. So all those great Vision Quest, Karate Kid, all these great 80s movies were feeding into this, you know, this, this coming of age to kill a mockingbird to even go back even further to the great coming of age movies from back then. So they all fed it, but it was more coming from the angle of it was so personal because what it's ultimately about for me is that my love of movies, movies were kind of my religion growing up. They were my kind of, I feel like they saved me from other kind of bad paths I could have gone down. They were kind of the, the way out my sanctuary in life so from a very early age so this was my way almost paying back what i feel like was uh was my what <laughs> was it gave me a path in life cinema so i approach it just from this very personal obsessed movie fanatic angle on how do i pay this back and how do i really show especially the theater it's really about the theatrical experience the, the communal experience of being in a theater and watching a movie as a community and like i said it's a little bit of heightened but not really. I mean, when I saw Rocky Three with that audience in 82, people were standing on their feet. It was a beautiful thing. And, and I'm, I'm so afraid in the current marketplace because of what's going on in our industry that that communal experience could be going away. Um, so so it's kind of I hope it's not an artifact. I hope the, the, the movie doesn't become like a museum piece to a time forgotten hmm. when movies were truly events that we can all go see together as a community. Because so I think we've all tried to replicate it at home. I've tried to build my own theater and all this crap. I don't think there's a. I don't think we can. I don't think we can get that anywhere else but inside a movie theater. And listen, I love this. At the same time, the streamers give, and Vince could speak to this more than anyone, they give us an opportunity to go make very personal stories. So there's a great allure to that. I have a new piece right now that, you know, 
I'm getting pulled in that direction because the studios are, are, think it's a little too edgy. So the allure, because this, you know, the streamers, as we all know, preaching to the choir, they don't have to put asses in the seats so they can be a little more daring in their choices. And, uh, so there's a great allure to it. So I'm not, I don't want to take away from what they're giving us, but I don't want to lose that theatrical experience. So that's where I came from is really paying tribute to something that meant so, so much to me as a child. It's, it really shows in the film. I think people are going to, however they watch it, they're going to really pick up on that and, and get that feel. But I, I'm always so interested in like the the things that are us across our works and like what can we not help but put into the things we create? So I'm, I, I know p- other people are curious too. Like what do we expect from a coming of age movie from the purge guy? <laughs> like where is there is there a common DNA that you think you have across these films? I listen. I, I'm the first to say I can see it. I don't think anybody else in the world but my producer could see this common thread. I'm a Fellini fanatic, so he can't stand that I. There's something in Fellini's films, this absurdity that resonates with me. I love absurdity. I love what he did. He's my favorite filmmaker. So I find the Purge films visually absurd at points you know with the people dressing up the way they do yeah. the, the accoutrement that comes with the purge so mm-hmm. if you see my new film I, I i push the envelope with people singing opera on roofs tops and staten island and priests dressing up with christmas lights on roller skates and skateboards and i guess i can't escape the absurdity that i loved in those movies my first film uh, uh staten island new york was about a bunch of Staten Island is fighting the sense of insignificance on the five that they feel as being the forgotten borough on Staten Island. And I had the Vincent D'Onofrio character living in a tree. So I love absurdity. I don't think audiences like my absurdity. So my producers keep telling me to stop doing it, to stop it. It's a, it's a dated, you know, conceived. Bad director. <laughs> so, yeah, I think it's in there. I see it. I, I like that absurdity, but I don't know if anybody else, but me and my producer who yells at me to stop. <laughs> I, I love that, though. That's really cool. And it gives us like a unity to a James DeMonaco film. That's really neat. Um, Sujata, let's talk about Definition, Please, and why this story and why now at this point, you know, you you have a successful acting career. Why jump into telling a story on your own? James, I really felt it when you said personal films are very hard to get made because <laughs> I went through that whole process. Uh, and, uh, you know, I used my TV money. I was selling TV shows and I was like, oh, well, this is a sign. I have a feature that I want to shoot. And I put all that money into my feature. <laughs> yeah. And my parents were very supportive of that. They're like, oh, great. Good idea. You're making instead of a short, you're making a feature film. That's fabulous. And um, when people watch this film, it's it's not autobiographical, but it's one of the most personal stories that I've ever told. It's a it's definition, please, is about a young spelling bee champion. She's won the Scripps National Spelling Bee and now she's in her 20s and she hasn't achieved what she was destined to achieve in her life. She's still living at home. She is tutoring kids in her little neighborhood. And I really just wanted to tell a story about I love independent film in general. So I love the Duplass Brothers movies. I love um, there are a bunch of dramedies that I grew up watching that I was always inspired by, like sibling dramedies, especially 
um, Skeleton Twins, The Savages, uh, just some really beautiful films. And like James even mentioned, I feel like these movies aren't really being made by anyone except for the streamers anymore. And um, so that's that's really exciting. So I was just like, you know what? I'm just going to make this kind of small family dramedy with a family that you may have never seen on screen before. Just an Indian American family living in the burbs of Pennsylvania. We shot it in my parents' house, had to kick them out for a couple of days because my my dad was really excited and was just like taking pictures. And I was like, oh, my God, you can't be here right now. Like, I can't concentrate. And so so they went and stayed with their friends for a couple of days. And what was really amazing was the community coming together. So I'm from Greensburg, which is an hour east of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. and the there are no you don't have to get location permits in Pennsylvania, which is wild to me because I know in L.A. you have to get permits and pay all this money. And we called the Pennsylvania Film Office and they're like, no, you just you can just, you know, talk to the owner of the establishment and um, get to shoot there. So we went all around town. We shot in my hometown of Greensburg and shot in a treehouse, my friend's treehouse. It was very much a family affair. So my production designer, I went to middle school with. My, um, also my costume designer. Also, when I was doing sound design at Skywalker Ranch, I stayed with a friend of mine that uh, I've known since second grade. Um, so kind of across the board, it was everyone coming together to get this little indie film made. And um, once again, the, the thing like I was so excited to be able to do sound at Skywalker. My producer's brother works on the Star Wars films and the Spike Jones movies. <laughs> and I was like, I can't believe I'm sitting in this room and watching the final sound design in the Stag Theater, sitting in George Lucas's seat. It was just it was just I was shaking. Um, and so so many really serendipitous things started to happen where we. We did post-production at um, eFilm Company 3, and they're a great company. And my cinematographer, Brooks Ludwig, came to me early on and was like, oh, we should do post there. And and I looked them up and I was like, they do post for, they're working on the Avatar movies right now. How are we, <laughs> how are we going to be able to do post there? And then they, they reached out to us after our deadline announcement came out. And they were like, hey, the, you know, we we have a special program for first time filmmakers and we, we are giving back, you know? And so that was really exciting. And I definitely didn't answer question about coming of age movies. Well, let me, <laughs> let me, let me ask this. I'm going to, I'm going to reframe, um, I'm going to reframe this and then sort of open this up to everyone. But, you know, you both mentioned, uh, you and James both mentioned, like they don't make this kind of movie, right? Like this, especially like an indie dramedy, a family story. Um, do you take that as a challenge? Do you say like, this is the movie I love, so I'm going to make it? Or like, this is your first film. So is there a world where you say like, well, maybe I should play it safe and make some sort of like short about superheroes, right? James, you can go. Oh, me. Oh, God. No, you know, it's weird. Dude. I think I think I'm always operating just from some weird instinctual place that I, I don't 
that I just press ahead because I have no other choice in some way. I always say that when people say, well, what are you going to write next? I'm like, I don't really have a choice. It's going to, I'm just going to write it. It's like, that's the one I have to write when I wake up tomorrow or whenever that is, you know, it's going to take months, obviously. But so there's no true, I didn't think there's no true choice in the matter. So I'm not overanalyzing it. And sometimes, listen, sometimes I write them and then there's no marketplace for them though. So maybe I should have looked, maybe I should have said, oh, I should have given that some real thought because I might've just wasted, you know, three to six to a year of my life on something. So sadly, I think there's no real blueprint or the only motivating factor is I think I love this and I'd like to watch this. So that that's what pushes me and whatever wakes me up that, you know, every day that I'm inspired for some intangible freakish reason. People ask me all the time, like, why did you write that one? I'm like, I, it's, it's, I have to, I just, I like it. <laughs> Everybody else might freaking hate it. And yeah, often that happens, but so no, I'm not thinking that way, dude. And, and often I think even with the purge, strangely, which ended up being a Hollywood film, it was written, it was denied by, I think we counted one day, Sebastian, my producer and I, before Jason, before it got into Jason Blum's hand, I think 50 financing entities, including every studio said, it's way too anti-American, too nihilistic. You'll never get it made, especially in the American market. Because it was such as they found it to be this, you know, indictment of the American system. And so, you know, so we were never, it was never, there was no architecture behind it. And then Jason saw the conceit to be something bigger. We thought it would play one theater in Manhattan, like Michael Haneke's funny games, like this extremely violent little indie and home invasion thing. So again, maybe my agent often tells me, you should think more about before you put pen to paper sometimes. And I'm like, I, I don't know if maybe I should, but I'm not going to. So can I can I just comment to that? I don't mean to to, to cut anyone off here, but I, I, be, what 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 you're saying, James, is 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 told you by everybody, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but it's been my experience to the contrary, and I've had this conversation at you know parties and whatnot before, which is the second I start to do that, the second I try to do that, and I start to say this is the space in which they want it. Number one, it's not going to be as organically for me, so it doesn't feel quite right, like it's the slightly ill-fitting suit. But even more than that, you're behind the curve. So, and I'm not exaggerating here, everything, and when I say everything, I'm talking about everything that I have created and sold, what I was told will not sell. Every one of them, every one of them. Um, and that includes even that, that beach movie that I was telling you about. And that was, you know, going to Disney and saying, they'll never do, they'll never do a beach movie. I'm like, it's a Netfunicello. I mean, th- th- you know, it's like the Mouseketeer is in the <laughs> DNA of that, you know, and they were like, you will never sell it. And it sold in, in 24 hours after pitching. Wow. So I, I, w- I would just say, yes, you, you're doing the way you're supposed to, which is you feel it. It's in your heart. You write it. And it, but it may not, and you may put it in a drawer for five years mm-hmm. and then it sells, yeah. which is also fine, you know? So, yeah. Sorry. That's the thing. It's like everybody, interrupt. everybody says no until someone says yes. Yeah. It's like, it's, and it happened with you, uh, James for the purge. It's like everybody passed until James Blum saw what it needed. It's like, yeah. You only need one. And he even was like, yeah. yeah, this is a franchise. Like Stephen Cannells, who has Pose, like he tells a story. It's like over a hundred something rejections yeah. until he got it to Ryan Murphy, who was like, yes, let's do this. And now he's going to be at the Emmys on Sunday, like right. making history, hopefully. It's for me, it's like, yeah, I can't tell you how many times I've had like specs rejected, but I got one of my specs into the hands of the guys at Atomic Monster. And they're like, we're not necessarily going to buy this spec, but we like that you're weird. We're weird. 
James has this idea that's been percolating in his head. Would you like to do it? So it led to something. And as Vince is saying, it's like, I can always put that idea in script in a drawer and maybe it'll come back later. It's like, it's that famous story where Matthew Weiner took what, 10 years to sell Mad Men. Yeah. And that- I, I, this raises, this raises an interesting question to me though. And that's about balancing your time and like the stuff you choose to work on. Right. And, and I just want to sort of go around first and like hear what your output is. Like, what can you, how many things can you work on at a time? What, what do you churn out in a year, both that you're writing on spec and that like we all need to get paid too. Uh, so there's that stuff that takes time. And so like Vince right now, how many projects are you working on that you're actually planning to write? And then what is, how does directing tie into that too? Yeah. So if it's a project that I'm developing uh, from either source material or an original idea, I don't go into it without the intention to write Mm -hmm. it. If it's a script that's been brought to me that I'm reading and I think this is great, but needs some tweaking and I may not direct it different story. And there are those that come to me. I usually don't take fresh ideas, original ideas and say, and go to a writer and say, because usually the inspiration for the idea is some, some aspect of my taste that really kind of requires, I mean, I'm not the only person that could write it, but the vision I'm seeing in my head is now very specific because I've come up with it where an idea that's been brought to me that I could say, Oh, you know, it would be really good for this though. And then you match it up with another director and then they do a rewrite on that writer's script. Um, I love that. In fact, you know, I, I, you know, in the last uh, couple of years, I've also, you know, had the opportunity now to be able to go into some studios and do some consulting work where I'm actually helping them shape the scripts. And, you know, it's a lovely thing to do. Number one, cause you're helping people figure out stuff that are sometimes too close to the material, but it's also, it, you realize it's a, it's, um, it's a, it, you know, it's a skill that you, that as you do it more and more and more and more, you get better and better and better at it. So I'm finding that there's coming, I'm getting a lot of satisfaction from just helping people get those things sorted and get the structure figured out or arc the characters more efficiently or, you know, or add a, a, an, an arching concept that makes it a little bit more sellable in the marketplace or whatever it is, you know. Um, so, you know, that's that's kind of, you know. But it, and it's still multiple projects at one time. It's still I mean, multiple projects at one time. And, and for me, the, you know, I basically, I will take, you know, cause I'll get, I'll get scripts sent to me, finished scripts. I'll get, uh, books. I mean, I've had, you know, IP of different, you know, uh, products, toys, all sorts of things will come my way and I'll basically categorize them, you know, uh, so that I don't have overlapping things that are the same kind of things. And, and then I'm pushing, I mean, I, right now I probably have seven, maybe eight different, um, either books, um, original ideas or some sort of inspiration, like a game or something or a toy that's looking to be shaped into a feature film. So um, I don't know. I don't know any other way of getting one to happen. You know, I have to be doing eight. Yeah. Vince, could you write multiple things at the same time or develop multiple things? I can write multiple things at the same time. I can, I can the caveat. Don't not, don't think me. I'm, don't think I'm a superhero. Um, if I'm working with writing partners, which which means that if I'm if I'm if I'm co-working with a couple different writers, then I can bounce back and forth between the two things. Um, we usually do half and half, and then we flip the material. Um, and during the times that I'm 
editing their work, I'm writing my other one. And I've done that. I've done that a couple times. And uh, it's tricky. It's tricky with when you get stories that have uh, lots of multiple subplots. That's the only thing I will say, you know, so out, pre-outlining is very important in those scenarios. So I really have to know where things are going. Um, but, you know, even the Kissing Booth movies, uh, those two scripts were written. We wrote those two. Those two feature scripts were written in less than three months. And it was the most, you know, absolutely, you know, pedal of the metal pace I've ever written in um, because that included one rewrite. So it was, you know, and it was necessity. It was pay or play, you know, uh, arrangements with the actors and we had to get it, you know, production dates and, you know, the movie had to get blah, blah, blah. This is all pre-COVID. So COVID's of course slowed everything down, but yeah. Yeah. But I know what, I know what you mean. Yeah. I know what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. I wish I could. I know, I know writers who could do what you're saying. It's, I get so obsessed with the singular project I'm working on, even if I have a partner on it, that I can't, I think my process doesn't allow it either. Like, there's something I get, it's 24-7, I don't sleep, I get like manic, I drink a lot of tequila, I'm running around in circles a lot. I, I have one song playing in my office for 24 hours, and I, I get into almost a manic state, so it has to be singular. Once I'm directing, I'm the same as you. Once I'm directing, then it's, I can't, I can't be writing scripts and directing something. So I'm sure there are people that do this, but once, once I'm shooting and directing and into post, then I'm done. Yeah. For a while. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah exactly. And Akili, I mean, you've been working in television, which is a full-time job. Yeah. And in the meantime, you've been writing screenplays, uh, feature scripts, both on spec and for other people. Again, tell us about like juggling that workload. It's tough. And uh, I am trying to get away from juggling as much as I'm juggling. And this is by no means, I am not in any way trying to brag, but just off of your question, I'm looking because I have a board of like all of my stuff. So between February and April of this year, at most, I had five and a half things that I was working on at one time. That is writing. I was writing an episode for Star Trek Strange New Worlds. I was writing a pilot for Netflix. I was doing a rewrite on a feature film. Uh, I was doing a rewrite for uh, an upcoming, we actually just sold this. So I was doing a feature rewrite for an actor they commissioned from me. And I was working on The Nun 2 uh, for New Line while also developing a pitch that I took out earlier this year. <laughs> so, <laughs> and it's it's basically, I, I just have to divide up my day. And I, at that point, I have to use all seven days uh, and try to fit in something of a personal life, which COVID kind of, it was like personal life just became like sit on a couch and zoom with your friends. Yeah. So I didn't really have to worry about going out, going out. Um, but yeah, no, it was as writers and in you guys probably as directors as well, you try your best to space things out, but then, and I've bitched about this on Twitter multiple times, business affairs will always fuck you <laughs> and everything bottlenecks. No matter Absolutely. how hard you try, everything bottlenecks. Yeah. It's like, oh, hey, the notes are coming back on for this and this dude just closed. So they want you to get started. And we're, it's like, they need this, you know, turnaround. Yeah, every everything bottlenecks. And, and it's kind of ebbed and flowed. Right now, I'm only working on two things. Uh, and they're both pro professional things. And I've decided that probably once I actually turn in the last thing, which hopefully will be mid-October. I'm just going to take the rest of the year and work on my stuff. 
um, and rest. Uh, <laughs> that was but, yeah. It was something I wanted to ask. Like as you're working on these projects, which again are like these are professional things. You're doing these for studio or network or whatever. Um, is there something chipping away at the back of your brain, going like, "Oh, yes. this is an idea that I want to chase down." And how do you start to, how do you both hold on to it, but also give it room? Cause you have to finish these other things. I usually take times like, no one's going to see this, but I have like my little, I have mm -hmm. lots of notepads and notebooks around my house. And whenever an idea strikes, like I'll either write it down or I'll get on my notes app in my phone. And then my breaks from the professional stuff will be like an hour to veg out in front of the TV and then try to organize those thoughts into something. So I'm like going along the way and organizing it. So that way it's like, mm. once I'm able to like do the outline stage, it's not like me taking a bunch of papers and consolidating everything. So I do chip away at it, but yes, I have That's a, a lot of ideas uh, <laughs> that I would like to do. Right. Uh, and we all, do. all numbered and it's like, yeah. uh, you know, this is the one that I've been like, I've had in my brain for two years. So that's up next. Uh, and then so on and so forth. Uh, but yeah, with, with personal stuff, I do kind of become like focused and obsessed and I just want to work on that one thing because at that point it, it should just be a joy to, to do mm -hmm. it. And I think that's a piece of Absolutely. good advice you've given too, which is like, you can chip away at this. So you get a little bit of a head start. You're not coming mm -hmm. in cold when you can actually give the time to it. Um, I want to, uh, ask Sujana, a, a similar sort of question. Is Definition Please your first feature script? That it's not the first feature script I've ever written. I this is what I'm curious about. <laughs> <laughs> I took a semester of screenwriting and a semester of playwriting in college. And I I I was like, oh, maybe I could, you know, look at that script and see if there's something to say from it. And I started reading it. And I was like, this is terrible. This is like the worst thing. <laughs> I've ever written. And it's so nice to, I don't know if you guys have ever done that and gone back and looked at old scripts and it's so cool to see how far you've come. And you're like, oh, I actually can make a story with a beginning, middle and end with heart and emotion and laughs. And so that that was exciting for me to be like, oh, I'm going to trash this script that I wrote <laughs> in college because it was so bad. Um, but definitely like speaking COVID wise, I had a lot of outlines. And I was like, oh, I'm just going to take this time to write all the scripts. And all of my scripts are personal. So um, I wrote a feature. I wrote a pilot. I wrote, uh, I, I sold a show to a studio. So we, we're working on that pitch and we're taking that out pre-Thanksgiving, hopefully, fingers crossed. And And I've always been of the motto, never put all your eggs in one basket. So mm -hmm. I like to always be continuously working on different things. And, and I feel passion and heart for every single script and story that I'm working on. So it's really exciting to kind of go back into those worlds when I can. And I think that's, that's good advice too. Um, Vince, go, go ahead, jump in. Yeah, I, just, I, I, just I think wanted, you're going to talk about a, what I want to talk about. <laughs> well, I, I just wanted to make a comment. I don't know if it is what you want to talk about. I feel like it should be said that when you're in a, you know, I'm talking to people all on this, you know, in this podcast that are engaged in high productivity, they're getting a lot done in a year, in a calendar year. Um, 
and you uh, you get into that mode, you begin to understand the, the only way you can be successful here is if you're creating a lot of content because not everything sticks, not everything sells. Mm -hmm. So that what I want the thing that one thing I wanted to say, which is something that's been washing over me over the last couple of years is, you know, you arrive here in this town and you're writing and you begin that process and you put your head down and it's go, 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 and it's nonstop. And then you know, you, you have a moment, some success or whatever it might be. And then you stop and you look up and you're like, holy shit, you know, that's mm -hmm. 10 years. It just went by or 15 years. It just went by of you doing this at this pace. So I just want to say that, you know, it's also like Akila saying in terms of the end of the year, it is equally as important. And I don't always give it to myself, but it is equally as important to also stop and to take a breath to reflect and to give yourself a second. Mm -hmm. to let the battery recharge because there is a kind of um, grind that you get into when you're producing at this level um, that that little stop and reset is, you know, is as valuable as, mm -hmm. you know, sitting there with your pad and coming up with 15 new ideas. Um, and I don't know if I believed that when I started as much, it was mm -hmm. work until I drop because yeah. I have to make this happen. Absolutely. And, yeah. You know, I, I truly yeah. believe self-care is so important. Even when I was, mm -hmm. uh, when we were shooting definition, please, there's one thing that I need that I just have to have to like be nice person in the morning. And it's eight to nine hours of sleep. Okay. <laughs> so, 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 so even, even during the shoot, we're shooting 12 hour days. And I was like, I got to get my sleep. Wow, got to wow. do it. I'm, and I slept. I slept. Yeah. I don't sleep when I shoot. I don't sleep at all. Me it's neither. Terrible. That's the problem. I can't, I can't shut I'm like down. like five it's hours. Terrible. Yeah, it's me terrible. too. I take everything. Yeah. Like, well, I don't want to get into that. But yeah, anything that. <laughs> <laughs> anything That's that for you and your therapist. Part. Yeah, exactly. I got to hold so, that back. Yeah. Well, I want to I wanna really pick quick. this up though. Yeah, go ahead. Oh no, I'd like to piggyback on what Vince is saying. Yes, it's like, I I realized a couple of years ago, I was like, I am a workaholic and that is not a good thing. And yeah. so that is something that I've been struggling with for the last couple of years. It's just like, I don't have to go, go, go and drive myself into the ground. And last year I actually like looked at the schedule that I had and it was a, there was a thing that uh, I found producers on for this IP that I have been super passionate about. And they liked my take on it. I liked them. We were going to go out with it, but they were going to run out of the rights. And it was a it was a time crunch thing. And I'm just like, I had to go to my agents like, look, I came to you guys with this and I'm going to have to say no, because I'm not going to be able to do this in the time that they need me to do it um, with everything else that's going on. And we're always afraid of like saying no, because it's like, mm -hmm. oh, man, I'm going to pass out this opportunity and yada, yada, yada. And I said, no, I was like, with respect, thank you. I can't do this right now. And then the producer was like, oh, we can make time. Like, if you just need more time, because like they liked my take and they wanted to work with me. So they made the time that like gave me what I needed at the beginning of the year to hit the ground running in like February or whatever. And so my advice to the people listening is like, sure, you've got to get your foot in the door. But at a certain point, you do have to look after yourself. And it's OK to say no. Because sometimes yes. that no is not going to be the end. You might be surprised as to what you you get after that. Oh, that's yeah. that's great. I I got to jump in there. I think no. What I learned is that saying no is the greatest. It makes them like want us more. You say no a lot. I say no all the time. Nah, I'm not interested. 
And there's something about that that all oh, makes us. Let not me just send it to you control. anyway, and you take a look. Yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. Just take a look. I've turned I've turned down deals where they are not giving me what I want, and I walk Absolutely. I've walked away like yeah. so many times, and then they come back and give yes. me the executive not used to credit sure. or whatever exactly. I'm asking for. Yeah, for sure. yeah, yeah. The, the power shifts when we say no. I've I've seen over the years, which is it's so yeah. fun to do in a way. It's very liberating. It took me no. a while to learn that. I was just yeah. like, no, yeah, I'm yeah it takes say a while. Yes yeah. It's like, yeah. wait, no, I can say no, and it's it's not a bad thing. Right. right. But it's it's exactly right. what Vince was talking about, right? It's you spend a decade hustling, right? Because it is a hustle. And and yeah, there's sure. you know, I think a lot of us are built for it, right? Like yeah. we love the work. And mm-hmm. we may not love the hustle, but we love what comes out of it or the potential yeah, exactly. of what comes out of it. So yeah, it's hard to say no. And I'm yeah, I'm inspired hearing all of you to say <laughs> no to some things. Yeah. Oh yeah. I will also say, like, within the we, this is gonna come to a head at some point. But like, open writing assignments and all this other stuff, where they come to you and you're, they're basically asking you to do work for free. No. Oh. Uh, to help them develop IP, I've started turning down shit left and right. Yeah. Like, you want me to do this? You're going to pay me. You guys something. Pay. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. There's an opportunity for people at a certain point in their career and. I will say that, you know, producers often are investing a lot of time and energy years, you know, sometimes a decade to get things made. So I understand, Mm -hmm. but, and and there are people that are at certain points of their career where that investment of your time is, is, it's really not an investment in them. It's an investment in yourself saying, I'm willing to invest my energy for, to, to show them that I can do this. Mm. Once you've moved through that, you cannot, it's like an abusive relationship, patterns of abuse that you <laughs> just keep going back. <laughs> yeah. So you, yeah. you have to stop it, which is what you're yeah. saying. And, and that's 100% yeah. true. Yeah. yeah. The only time I write for free is one of my original ideas. And then I just spec it out and I can write sure. it. But I, I'm not yeah. trying to write for free for anybody else. Yeah. yeah, yeah, no. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But to do and a polish of something you've written, you know, to, yeah. to, you know yeah. those are investments in self. And so we say, you know. Um, yeah. You know, it's sometimes it gets to the point where you're so busy, like even even putting together a pitch, because, you know, if I'm going in, I'm doing a deck, I'm doing all these. It's just time consuming. It is. Um, and I'm sure everybody here has a pile of unsold decks and you sometimes you're scrolling through your your PowerPoint going, oh, Jesus, look how many of these things I've created. <laughs> it's time consuming. So yeah, you have to be yeah. you have to start picking, you know, yeah. as you Absolutely. progress in your career. And hopefully, I mean, Akela, to your point earlier, like hopefully that's something that both the guild and the studios will start talking about all of this free work that goes into just trying to get the work. Uh, Cause yeah. it is frustrating. Um, we're going to wrap up as we always do by asking you what you are watching on television or what great movies you have seen lately, either new or not new. Uh, that you want to recommend to folks? What is getting you excited or inspired? Uh, what is helping you turn off your brain, but also excite your brain? Um, and so, Jada, let's start with you. Yeah, I mean, definitely during the pandemic, I went back and watched a whole bunch of shows that everybody talks about that I had never watched, which was The Wire, Sopranos. I watched all of Twin Peaks, which I loved. And then... Uh, right now I'm watching the Larry Sanders show and it's incredible. Right. I love it, it so much. That's a good one. Great, great show. 
You're just doing <laughs> HBO's greatest hits. That's right. I know. I think that's what I'm doing. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, James, what are you watching? I, I watched I very obscure beam. I'm a big B movie fanatic from the seventies, so I'll give you the two I just watched. I watched a great movie. If you guys could look it up, it's on Amazon Prime is a great resource for old B, you know, great seventies B movies. Mm-hmm. So something called Pretty Boy Eddie with Shelley Winters, truly a unknown, forgotten, beautiful, not beautiful. It's, it's dark and disturbing, but it's really, I mean, it's exploitation cinema in a way, but B movie exploitation from seventies, but well done, well done. And, uh, yeah. and the second one I watched was a, a John Cassavetes. I love John Cassavetes acting. Oh, I love his directing, but I love his acting even more. So I watched Machine Gun McCain, which you guys probably know. It's a great B-movie from, I think, 69. And it's considered a B-movie, but in Europe, it was considered an art film. So it's a very strange amalgamation of things. It played at Cannes and stuff like that. So that's what I watched this weekend. Check it out. That's great. (laughs) I love it. Uh, Kayla, what are you watching these days? Uh, Ted Lasso, like half (laughs) of the country. I, I love it. It's... It's realistic, and yet it's realistic that allows you to be happy and positive. Like, I know a lot of people were shitting on it because it's like, it's nothing but positive. And it's like, they're getting to it. And then they did. Yeah. It's no spoilers. But it's like, no, it's it's people dealing with life in the best way they can without being toxic, which is nice for a change. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> also loving uh, What We Do in the Shadows is one of my favorite shows on right now. I'm looking forward to the return of Doom Patrol next week. Uh, really, so really good. love that show. Uh, I think the last movie that like really blew me away outside of Malignant, which is my own, um, uh, was Pig <laughs> with Nicholas Cage. Yeah, Pig's That's what I've heard. Like, is it great? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is. And go in it's not good. knowing anything about it. Done. Yeah, it's a good movie. Yeah. Kelly, did you okay. see? Uh, did you did you see Mandy with Cage? I did see Mandy. That's good. I just watched that too. Just, that's a good film. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Sorry. That's, no, that <laughs> seems oh, yeah, 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 yeah. both of your alleys. That absolutely makes sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> now Man, I know what good. to expect <laughs> from Pig. Uh, Vince, what are you watching these days? Uh, I mean, on the TV side, Ted Lasso is probably my the top pick for me as well. That's um, the, I just, you know, sort of immersed myself in that world. Um, I also went back and caught up on the last three seasons of uh, uh, 30 Rock, which I had sort of dropped off and I never had gotten to see the resolution, which is really nicely done and yeah. fun and so uh, such a great spirit and so in character with you know, Tina Fey's style. Um, like finally caught up on that. And I know that's, that's an old one. It's been around a while. Um, and then the other thing that I was doing is I just wanted to go back and watch all of the kind of um, you know, mid thirties to mid forties, um, screwball comedies. Oh, fun. That I haven't watched. I love these all. And I haven't watched them all. I just wanted to put them fresh in my brain because that's another space. I feel like this type of comedy that has action in it is, mm-hmm. um, I love them. They were very influential to me. And, um, you know, whether it's, you know, bringing a baby or you know, even Philadelphia, um, sure. or the Philadelphia story. Um, was, you know, they're just so smart, so fun, so witty. Uh, and I was like, oh, perhaps there's a renaissance for that. So I've been sort of immersing myself in those again, just to sort of be inspired. That's great. And yeah, folks should check those out. I'd love to see that tone in contemporary movies again. Yeah. I feel it like it happened one night, man. You can do it. I mean, it's, it's just, <laughs> yeah. it's like you just watch it, like, well, there it is. 
a whole genre created in one film. Yeah, right? so, wild. Yeah. Uh, these are all great recommendations. Uh, in addition to, I will recommend all of your movies. Folks should go check all of them out. Um, congratulations to all of you on all recent success and all future success. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, please come talk to us anytime. This was really lovely to meet you all. Our pleasure. Thank, Thank you so much. Thank so much. You. Great time. Nice meeting you guys. Nice meeting you. Guys you. Bye, Ciao. guys. Forever. Dog. This has been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcasts.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram at Forever Dog Team and liking our page on Facebook.